Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to welcome you all to this November Conservative Women's Network Luncheon. I want to give a special thanks to the Heritage Foundation and Anna Quintana, who is the senior policy analyst for Latin America, who's representing Heritage up here today. The Heritage Foundation and the Center have been doing this lunch now for 20 years, and it is a pleasure and a treat every single time. Now, today's speaker is Lala Mooney, a great leader and an author. And you all know, most of you regulars, that CWN is designed as a forum exclusively to have women at the podium, with occasional exceptions. Just women, not because we don't like men. We love men, our husbands, our fathers, our sons, our nephews, our friends. But because women are important to be spotlighted as well. But every once in a while, there's a special occasion and we do invite a man to the podium, and today is very special. I am so pleased and honored to present Lala's introducer, her son, Congressman Alex Mooney of West Virginia. Alex is so well known to conservatives that you hardly need an intro, but I'm going to mention a couple of things that just came to mind. First off, Alex is a testament to Lala's extraordinary success in producing children completely committed to freedom. Alex was a state representative in Maryland for many years from a very difficult district. He also served as chairman of the Maryland Republican Party, another difficult assignment. My husband, Ron Robinson, and I worked with Alex for a number of years when he ran the National Journalism Center at Young America's Foundation. And finally, I could say lots, lots more, but I want Alex to do the intro. When I think of Alex, I especially admire that he lives and believes in family values every single day of his life. His family comes first. So please join me in welcoming, from almost heaven, the great state of West Virginia, Congressman Alex Mooney. Well, thank you. I do a lot of public speaking, but it's not every day I get to introduce my own mother to a distinguished group like this. And uh, thanks. Um, timing worked out perfect because I just finished voting and ran over here. So. Uh, we're done for the week. Uh, but thank you to Michelle Easton and the Claire Booth Luce Institute for Conservative Women for their important mission and for inviting my mom to speak and me to open here today. It's such an important mission. I'm now, you talked about, you know, being a good, a good mother, and I'm a father of two daughters myself. And, of course, I have a wife and a sister and a mother, so I'm surrounded by strong women. And I know how important it is to have strong women who are conservative and can explain those values to their families first and foremost and their friends and neighbors. Uh, so it's something we're dedicated to. So uh, I don't know exactly what my mom's speech is going to go like. I've not heard it before, so I look forward to hearing it as well. 
But some basics, she was born in 1941 in Cuba. Uh, she turned 20 years old while sitting in a prison in Cuba and had the opportunity to flee to this country. And this, is, this country accepted her as it accepts, accepts many legal immigrants who bring conservative values and understand and appreciate freedom, sometimes more than people have been here and take it for granted after being here for a long time. My mother met my father while they were students at Catholic University here in D.C., my family, my mom's family, didn't actually go to Miami like a lot of Cubans wound up. Uh, they actually came to the D.C. area. Uh, slowly over time, some moved to Miami, but my mother moved, went to Catholic University. The, her father and mother came here, uh, and so she's basically been in this area the second half of her life, shall we say, from age 20 till today. Uh, we eventually, my father served in Vietnam. He's been dead for about 18 years. He served in Vietnam. He was also conservative. He was fighting the communist advance in Vietnam, something my mother supported. In our family, I remember asking my father about that. Fight, you know, do you think the Vietnam War was a good idea? Because people want to uh, say it wasn't. Oftentimes, he said, "Yes, we were stopping the advance of communism. It was a good, it was a worthy cause." And of course, those communists took my mother's home country, and to this day, over six years later, still oppress everyone in the country of Cuba because of our failure to support the freedom fighters there. My mom will go through that because she lived, literally lived through it. Uh, my mother is a uh, four children. I'm the middle. It's boy, boy, boy. I'm the middle boy. And then we have a sister uh, who's the fourth child. She has 14 grandchildren. She's one of 14 children herself. That's in the book that you all, you all get. There's a nice, beautiful picture of the 14 brothers and sisters. My mom's number four of the 14. So she's amongst the older there. Yeah, great picture. So I actually have 50 first cousins on the Cuban side of my family. Yeah. So I actually, I actually grew up thinking I was Cuban. You know, my, my, my dad's Irish, but you know, they weren't as close, let's just say, as the Cuban side of my family. Most of them didn't have children and stuff like that. So we went off to Miami all the time. I, I really identified as Cuban growing up. Of course, I tell people that now, and they think I'm joking that I'm, when I say I'm Cuban just by my last name and by looking at me. They're waiting for, like, the punchline or something like that. I'm like, no, no, I really am Cuban. And my, my wife's parents are both from Cuba, by the way, also. I actually married a Cuban lady. Uh, who's a neurosurgeon by training, now mother of three. So I have strong Cuban women all around me, uh, but people don't know I'm Cuban unless I tell them. You guys will all know that from now on. So, um, so you know, the 50 cousins, I don't know, Mom, if you're getting into the mayor. You know, her brother was the first Cuban mayor of Miami. His son is now the mayor of Miami, Florida, Francis Suarez. So if you're in Miami, the Suarez name is well known. And, you know, I'm Suarez through my mom, but they still don't know I'm Cuban unless I tell them. So... <laughs> Kind of frustrating if you haven't figured that out. But, you know, having her experience that you're about to hear growing up as a kid, my mother instilled in me the values Michelle was just talking about, the love for freedom and the, and the love for the process we have here, a Republican form of government with Democratic elections. Uh, we had a, a gentleman who lived down the street on Wingate Drive, Mom. You remember Eddie Thomas, former state senator Eddie Thomas? I remember just as a child, I was probably 11 years old, so I didn't know anything about politics and the world and how it works. But every time we drove by that house, my mother would say, that's a very important person. That job they're doing there, that's, it's valuable, it's important, it's a, it's a good thing. Whereas if you ask people about pol politicians today, anywhere in the country, they make fun of us. Oh, you're all bad people, you're all doing horrible stuff, it's like terrible. I mean, what's the approval rating of Congress, like 9% or something? I mean, you know, too many of our friends and family don't view public service as an honorable thing. But when you lose your entire country to an evil communist who still oppresses your, your friends and family to this day, you don't view this government that way. You have a better view of it, and it's very important. So I kind of grew up thinking public service was an honorable thing to do, not a dishonorable thing. It was always in the back of my mind. I never thought I'd run, frankly, but it was in the back of my mind. And I finally decided to run. I was only 26 years old. No one thought I'd win. Ran for the state senate. 
And uh, I, I tell you, every politician wishes they had a mother like mine because they'd see what she was doing. She'd knock doors, you know. Most people don't do that at all. I recommend you all go knock doors for the candidate of your choice. Wonderful thing to do. Phone bank. She'd work the polls on election day. Uh, she was just all in to help, to help me. And I guess I just, for a while, I might have just assumed that was natural because that's the way I was raised. My mother was always very supportive. But when I saw the other politicians, frankly, quite jealous of my mother's activities on my campaign, I came to appreciate a lot more. Um, so then here she's, you know, you can add up the years. She's in the second half of her life, shall we say. In the last few years, all she kept talking about was the need to put together her life story, put together in this book you're going to get, there's lots of pictures. She spent almost two years, ladies and gentlemen, putting those pictures together. And she paid extra so they could be in uh, color. So uh, this book, you know, when God takes her home and me home, our kids, grandkids, great, great, great grandkids will still have this book to see uh, what our family experience was like and what they went through. But it's not just a family story. It's a story about the evils of communism. I mean, here I serve with people who call themselves socialists. Just walked by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the other day. And these people want to turn our country into a socialist country, as if the experience in Cuba and now in Venezuela and other places uh, didn't mean anything to them, or they don't understand how horrible and evil those systems are. So I thought, you know, she thought it was important to write this book, and I think it's a great idea, because that story still needs to be told. It's still happening today, the oppression, the failure of that economic system, not just the economy part, but also the rooting out of religious values. We're a Catholic family. That was important to us growing up. And the secular left wants to put us all in jail, essentially. Uh, they want to eradicate any kind of values from our system. So it is a serious threat to our country. So I'm just so proud my mom wrote this book, and I thank you all for coming. With no further ado, my mother, Lala Suarez Mooney. Good evening, I mean, good afternoon. <laughs> My Cuban is still coming up. Um, it's an honor to be here, thank you for coming. Uh, like uh, Alex was saying, uh, he was the one that inspired me and moved me to write the book. One day he came to me and he said, Mom, I was just talking about you today, why don't you just write the book? <laughs> so, um, but I want to tell you that it was a family affair. Uh, as soon as I started, my brother in Miami, my brother George, has 3,000 pictures. So he started telling me which pictures should go there. <laughs> then my brother in Boston um, invited me to come, and he told me how to use a dictaphone and how to use all kinds of electronic techniques that I never saw. Then my little brother, Manny, who's here tonight, today over in the corner, uh, wrote part of his book, and he also encouraged my other two sisters to write. And the beautiful thing is, one of my sisters died uh, last year, yeah, of Agent Orange. And because Mani had encouraged her, she had wrote, written a couple of paragraphs about her experience. So you will read that in the book. Uh, and uh, my whole family finally become involved so many of the chapters are written by different family members. And I'm going to show you something. My dad, uh, my dad wrote a book six months after he came to America. 
So when Alice said, you know, you're going to write a book, that was easy because <laughs> I could take what he had written. And the value was my dad was in prison with me the same time I was in prison. And when he was in prison at La Cabaña, which is the fortress at the entrance, uh, I see some Cuban ladies saying yes. <laughs> uh, he could hear the executions. Uh, but the fact that he wrote it immediately after he came to America gives it a great value because the memories were very fresh. And you will read about that. All of you are going to get a book uh, for free tonight, today. Uh, and then uh, the, the value, then later on, my dad had been the dean of engineering in Cuba of Villanova. There was, nobody knows, there was a Villanova in Cuba. And uh, so he was a dean of engineering, and he wrote the book, and then the priest, Father Kelly, reviewed the book. So the book is very accurate. So that made it easier for me to write. But then now let me tell you a little bit about my own story. Uh, we were sitting in my house the day of the Bay of Pigs um, invasion, and we heard in the short wave that the, the invaders had landed. And we were sitting in the living room wondering what's going to happen. And I walk into the window of my room, and I saw that the house was surrounded by militiamen. And one of them signaled the other ones, just like if this was a military installation. And they came into the house by all the doors. And they said, everybody has to sit in the living room. And they searched the house. What nobody knew was that my boyfriend that morning had given me a gun. And it was against the law in all of Cuba to have guns. And an hour, fortunately, they never found it. An hour before, I had told one of my dad's employees, what do I do with this gun? And he buried it in the garden. And as the militia were walking up and down with their boots, I could see their boots stepping next to where the gun was buried. Uh, but God was in my side, and they didn't find it. So then they said, everybody above 12 goes to prison. So they picked up my dad, me and my sister, two visitors. By then, my mother had lost a baby, <laughs> number 15, and her health was not good. So we begged them to let her stay, and she stayed. Uh, altogether, we were lucky. We were only in prison two months. I do have an uncle who died in prison, and I have another uncle who served seven years of prison. And I'll, you'll read the story because his son rented a, a boat in Miami, went to Cuba, and ransomed him. It's only one of three cases that I've ever searched in the 50-plus 50 year, 50 years of communism. Uh, so you'll get to read that, too, from his son. Uh, we were taken initially to a temporary jail. And then when the Bay of Pigs failed, uh, we were transferred to a real jail. Now, I always like to ask this question. Uh, when the Bay of Pigs started, Fidel Castro picked up prisoners. 
In your mind, all of you, think of a number. How many prisoners do you think a government can pick up in one day? Now think of a number, now I'm gonna tell you. 100,000. How did he do it? In a year and a half or two years that he had been in power, he had created the biggest army in all of Central and South America. He had forbidden anybody to have guns, but he had gotten all kinds of guns from the Russians. And so every little, okay, in Havana, where my dad ended up in prison, there were 6,000 a la cabaña. Um, in, in another uh, place, El Principe, in another fortress, there were 5,000. My brother-in-law was there. But in every little town, in every little city, 200, 300, 500. Didn't have where to put them, so they put them in any big place they could find. And this is how communism worked. And this is how people were all scared. I ended up initially in the temporary prison. Then we were transferred to the women's prison of Guanabacoa in the outskirts of Havana. And there I found a lot of uh, agitation. And one day was terrible. But we were uh, temporary prisoners, but they were permanent prisoners that they wanted to transfer to another prison. So what did they do? Mother's Day, they allowed us to visit from our parents. And then these prisoners they want to transfer, they had them in the last group. So are you ready for this? When the last group was sitting there, they brought fire trucks and 500 firemen. And with water, they forced these women to get into the fire truck, into the vans. One of these women was pregnant. So what did the firemen do? They put the water hose towards her stomach to try to kill the baby. And the beautiful thing is that the other women surrounded her and the baby survived. On the way to the new prison, one woman did die because they pushed her against the van, she opened her head and she bled to death. And that's how communism works. Then, <clears throat> after we were in prison for two months, they came to my mom and they said, you know the laboratory that your husband has? Her students have hidden their arms and um, all kinds of explosives. So my mom knew that if they were to find this, my dad would have been executed immediately. He would have been blamed. He didn't know. So my mom went catatonic. Have you ever heard of that, catatonic? She couldn't move, she couldn't speak. We didn't know what to do. We took her to the hospital and they did electroshocks. They said, we just have to get her out of it. They did electroshocks. So I went and saw my mom with all these wires in her head and I brought her back home. At that point, we were lucky. We found out a connection to the Brazilian embassy and the Brazilian government put pressure and Fidel released my dad. So we were able to come to America on a ferry boat. Uh, my dad was an engineer, so he had a job offer 
a Catholic university for $125 a week with all, all the kids, and we came to America. Not everybody came. One of my uncles died in prison, Ignacio, and the other one I told you was rescued. Um, so then, life in America has been great. I have four children. Two of them are college professors. Let me brag a little bit. <laughs> uh, my older one, Venny, has the same name as his father. He teaches engineering at Georgia Tech. My youngest daughter, Margarita, is a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, a professor of uh, psychology and religion. Uh, my third son, Patrick, is a businessman. He's the one who makes more money. <laughs> the other ones have the titles. But <laughs> when he studied, if, if, if there wasn't a benefit to it, he quit studying. Uh, the engineer will just read there, and if the test was over, he'll stay there two more hours fighting for his engineering thing. Uh, and then I had Alex. Uh, I have Alex, who's a congressman, and like he said, uh, it's beautiful because the best thing you can give your children is other brothers and sisters. So life in America has been real good. I'm almost finished. Now I'm going to tell you about going to Cuba. In 1999-1998, the Pope said, open Cuba to the world and open the world to Cuba. So Cubans started going for the first time to Cuba. So I decided to go, and my daughter Margarita said, Mommy, you have to go. So she came with me and my other sister. And <clears throat> now I'm going to tell you what I found. On the beautiful part, I was raised in a sugar mill, and sugar mills were the biggest industry in Cuba. But sugar mills are like a little town of its own. So I had the incredible job, uh, joy of seeing all my friends that I had played hide-and-go-seek when I was little. And they were all living in the same houses with the same furniture falling apart, but I was able to see them. So in the positive side, it was beautiful. And now on the negative side, some of what's happening in Cuba is a disaster. I went shopping yesterday, and this lady said, oh, Cuba's better now, isn't it? No, Cuba is much worse. And let me tell you what happened. One big issue is the ration card. Have you ever heard of the ration card in Cuba? You have. Okay, wait till I tell you. I'm going to have my brother uh, in a couple of minutes distribute one copy of the ration card. Uh, because people assume if you have a ration card, you have enough food. The Cuban ration card only covers three days. So then you have a, a journalist go to Cuba, and you have, like, for example, The Economist writes an article saying Cubans have a ration card and they have enough food. So there is a great misunderstanding of what the reality is of the ration card. Ration card, I'm sorry, I mispronounced that. So what do you do? You have food for three days. What is your choice after that? Steal. Steal. Everybody steals. From whom? From the government, because the government owes everything. So I visited one, um, I'm not going to say if he was a priest 
or a, or a uh, rabbi or a, um, you know, I'm going to let you figure it out, a real truthful person. And he said, Lala, everything in that refrigerator, everything in that refrigerator is stolen. So people spend their whole time stealing. So if a journalist from The Economist comes and said, you have enough food, well, you're going to say, yeah, I stole enough this week. No, you say, oh, yeah, I got enough food. So the hate speech starts at that level. They're not able to tell you the truth. So um, I made a real study of the ration card. And if you can see, for example, just mention a couple of things. How much coffee do you think they give you for the whole month? Figure a number. Four ounces. So what you do is, if you have a child, they give him four ounces, so you get eight ounces. And then if you don't drink coffee, you sell those four ounces to the guy across the street. So everybody's always talking about food. And one friend told me lately that out of 10 conversations that you have in a day, nine are out of food. This is how the communists control the people. So I, if anything else, I want you to leave home with this understanding. The second thing is the myth of the health care and how good it is. You've all heard how good health care is in Cuba, right? Okay. When I went in 1999, my niece, who had been in Cuba, said, a present that you can bring to people is 10 aspirins. So, I didn't bring the aspirins, but I brought this. She said, put 10 aspirins in a Ziploc bag, and that's what you give to people as presents. I'm asking you, does that sound like a good healthcare program? And again, that's the way they control people with the medicines. Then, <clears throat> there is another worse thing when it comes to the data. The data of suicides. The data of suicides in Cuba is extremely high. Even more, there's something called political suicide. Have you heard of that? Political suicide is, for example, one of Fidel Castro's lady who had been in the mountains with him became so disenchanted with the government, she decided to kill herself. This is the strategy. She kills herself of an, in, in a day of a national holiday. So the 26th of July, she committed suicide. Uh, it happens often. There is a former president, Dorothy Koss, from Cuba. He committed suicide. And sadly, you almost have known that Fidel Castro's older son jumped out of a window and killed himself with the last two years. I don't think we can call that political suicide, but we can see the sadness of the Cuban people. Well, my girlfriend, Maida Donati, was in Cuba in charge of the research on suicides. And later on, she came back to America, went to Barry University, and published her master's degree on that. 
And this is what happened. Maida Donate, you can see her in my book. She did the research, three months intensive research all over Cuba. And they found out that Cuba had practically the highest suicide rate in the world, uh, together with a couple of other countries. And even worse, who do you think commits more suicide, men or women? Mostly men. In Cuba, women. Women are at the same level as the men. And uh, also, who do you think commits more suicide, those who live in the city or those who live in the countryside? Cuba found out it was those in the countryside. Uh, but this is what happened. When she got the data, and the data went to Fidel Castro, Fidel Castro said, this is a national secret. And if anybody tells anybody, they'll be severely punished. So you, from now on, you have to change all the data. And if somebody dies, you know, in a car, uh, commits suicide, you say it's a car accident, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things is, which I mean, you all suspected, you cannot trust the data that Cuba puts out. Uh, but this lady documents it in her master's thesis, if you want to check it. The other one, which is very sad, is prostitution. Um, when I was in jail, a lady next to me, all of a sudden, was carrying on with a guard. And we couldn't believe it, what's going on? So we all hid in our rooms, and, and she went on to, the two of them went to do her business. And the next day, I found out that her husband was in prison in the, in the lower level, and he was diabetic. So her, her aim was to get medicines for him. And I asked myself, what would I do if I were in that situation? You know? So a couple of months ago, I was talking to a Cuban who was traveling, and her daughter is a prostitute. Uh, ultimately, the daughter met a man from, let me say, Europe, much older. He married her, and she's in Europe now. But the mother told me I could see her going at night, but that's how she was going to earn her money. So the case of the prostitution in Cuba is awful. And then Fidel Castro said publicly, that he's very proud Cuba has the best prostitutes in the world because they get better medicine and because they're better educated. And then the youth group, yeah, the youth group said that being a prostitute was being a hero for the government because you're bringing foreign investments. Uh, so, those are the most important things that I want you to leave tonight with that idea. Um, the beautiful thing, just to be uh, end up in a good note, I got two more things to say. The we went back to my church, to the church in the sugar mill where I built, where I lived, and we collected money and we were able to rebuild the church. So. Um, that was something that my family was able to do, and we're still traveling. My brother-in-law travels there once a year and uh, does uh, architectural visits and brings food and clothing and everything.
I myself was able to go seven times, and I did mission with my, with my church. Uh, so last thing, what's next for Cuba? What's going to happen? First of all, how are things now? Like I said yesterday, a sales lady said, things are better, aren't they? Every place I go, oh, yeah, things are a little bit better. Ladies and gentlemen, they're much worse. Why? Up to now, Cuba was depending on Venezuela. And it's called like a parasite. Venezuela was giving Cuba a great amount of oil and everything else. But you know what's happening in Venezuela, right? So the situation in Cuba is pretty desperate. One more issue that I found last week from a speaker. Cuba's influence in the rest of Latin America. I see you shaking your head. Uh, this, this speaker wrote a book, which is out there, I'll show it to you, um, Maria Warlaw, and she calls it soft power. Have you heard that expression before? Good, <laughs> because I haven't either. <laughs> and Soft power is what Cuba's doing. He said Cuba's sending well-trained Cubans to Venezuela. Right now, 34,000 Cubans. So what they do is they go to Venezuela, they infiltrate themselves in every place possible, and they are controlling Venezuela. Uh, my, my nephew, Carlos Suarez, works for the OAS in Ambassador Trujillo, works for the OAS, and they told me, you know, they are controlling Cuba. So this is called soft power, uh, and they're doing that also in two other countries intensively, Bolivia and Nicaragua. So it's not only Cuba now, it's Latin America that gets affected. And uh, I talked to Maria Warlow yesterday, and she said, um, I mean, you all know that the president from Bolivia just left and went to Mexico. So that might be good news. <laughs> On the other hand, she said that what Cuba does is not with this soft power, for example, they go to Chile. And in Chile, uh, they have four or five groups and they pay people to, to cause trouble and, and get the country all uh, agitated. And they do that in many other countries. So what's going to happen to Cuba? Of course, my last words before I close, I'm looking for a peaceful transition. I'm hoping for a peaceful transition. We have the words that Reagan said, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And last week I met the ex-president from Germany, and he said in a speech, I never thought that that wall was going to go down. And the following year, it went down. So I have hope in my heart that there will be a transition and somehow Cuba will be free again someday. Thank you. Alex? Sure. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Before we go to questions here. Two of my colleagues just came in the room, and I thought it'd be appropriate to introduce them. My good friend, Congressman John Rose from Tennessee, and uh, Congressman Jim Baird from Indiana. And I mentioned my father served in Vietnam. Jim, you see his left arm has a hook there. He lost that serving our country in Vietnam as well. So thank you.
Thank you. What an inspiring talk. You, you make us appreciate what your family and the Cuban people are still going through, and you make us love the freedom we have in America. Right, you're right. And I'm Thank so you. grateful to you and to Alex for coming by. We have a little bit of time for questions and answers. Um, we have some mics here. If you would um, wait for uh, Lala to call on you and uh, give your name and affiliation. Here, this looks like the first one here. I'm Margie Teed, and if I have an affiliation, it's the Arlington Republican Women's Club. Um, while you were talking, uh, I think of these people whose uh, kids from college who go to Cuba and stay for three months, and they all come back thinking it's wonderful. What's I know. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Um, you know, my daughter is a professor. She graduated from Yale and is a professor at Princeton. And she says the same thing, that some people go to Cuba, come back, and they say it's great. So how does the Cuban government manage to fool them? What are the strategies? Um, one of the strategies, of course, is the food. People don't tell you the truth. Um, they, they, they are, you're always accompanied by a translator or by a, an interpreter. Um, and, the, and the people in Cuba cannot talk. They have the police in their head. Cuba used to have, and still sort of have, on every block you have a friend of the Communist Party. So when I visited the the people in the sugar mill, the moment I left, the people from the Communist Party came and interviewed her. Who, who, who's she, what's she doing, whatever. Um, so it's very interesting. Another small theory that I have heard is that people, in their hearts, they want to see something better. So they see what they want, and they only see the good things. And like in the, in the case of the economist, in case of, I had an argument with a journalist from the Washington Post a while back. You only go one week. Um, so you want to say, you know, that you saw good things. Those that are there three months, we would hope they would have a chance to see more. Um, so it's a very interesting problem. Now, in the case of my daughter, my daughter went to Cuba in 1995 and, uh, when she was at Yale. And the first night when she went into her room, she had a phone call, and it was a man. And he, he was a prostitute, and he was asking her. And she got so frightened, she went and put the, the tables against the door. Uh, so she got a, a shock. Um, so that is a very valid question. I think that people just cannot speak. Oh, okay. Any more questions? The gentleman in the front here. Hi, Mr. Suarez. He's got the same name of my family. Oh. I just want to ask if you had a chance during your visits to Cuba to meet with Osvaldo Payas Sardinas or any other members of the Christian Liberation Movement, and if you could tell the audience a little more about him. Thank right. You. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> let me see. My own <clears throat> Osvaldo Payas, as you might know, uh, was just recently killed 
in Santiago. He was a dissident. And the way Cuba does it is they had um, a car following him and hit him by the back, and they managed to kill him. Um, no, I did not talk to the dissidents. Um, you said Ricardo Paya. Who else did you mention? Well, Harold Cepeda, who was the president. Right, right. No, the one that died. When I go to Cuba, I have to be very careful, you know, so I really go under what's called a humanitarian mission. Uh, because while they won't do anything to me, they will do something to those that interact with me. So I can cause them damage. Um, so I have met some of them. In fact, I think in West Virginia, a couple of months ago, they had somebody from the Damas en Blanco, you know, one of the uh, dissidents there. So I have met dissidents, but not in Cuba. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, my name is Riley Erlinghouse. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. And my question is whether you have any hope for pressure from other Spanish-speaking countries. I know the King and Queen of Spain um, visited Cuba. Do you think that will have um, any positive effects on continuing opening of the country in a peaceful transition? This is a, a very good question. Uh, Cubans are totally divided on that. <laughs> I have uh, members of my family. Uh, I have my, you know, a sister that goes four times a year, and she brings medicine. She brings stuff. And I have members in my family that said they will never set up food in Cuba. What do I think? Uh, I think uh, embargoes from the little history I know have worked when they are short term. Cuba has been in an embargo 50-some years. It hasn't worked. Uh, so you have the positives and the negatives. The positives is like visiting people in prison. You know, when my brother goes, he helps those people. And, and you bring it. My, my relatives ask for this medication and that medication. Um, so the positive for me is like visiting prisoners. Um, but I advocate not to do anything that brings money to to the to Raul, uh, or the minimum possible. You got to be realistic. Some money is going to be left there. So that's my point. What is yours? <laughs> you don't want to say. So I um, I think Yoani Sanchez and Catorce uh, y Medio have spoken about this um, group of independent journalists in Cuba and just that um, continued pressure and relationships with other Spanish-speaking countries um, are ongoing, or at least there's conversations. So if I could just jump in here really quick, just because I think you asked the question about the Spanish uh, king's re recent visit. Um, I think very little, uh, if we are judging from what's happened in the past and what's happening kind of in the present, very little, frankly, comes from that because these governments, frankly, demand very little from the Castro regime. I think their perspective is that they don't have the capacity to demand actual change and to demand any sort of improvements on human rights when, in fact, they actually do. Um, uh, prior to the Spanish king's visit, the Cuban regime slaughtered dogs inhumanely. Uh, dissidents were rounded up. Um, I mean, they pretended they cleared uh, town, I mean, neighborhoods in Havana 
to pretend that this was this Potemkin-like village just to make the Spanish king feel welcomed. And this is what they do on a consistent basis, right? The Mexican foreign minister was in Havana prior to the prime prior to the king's arrival as dissidents were being rounded up and yet the Mexican foreign minister did nothing about this and so I think we are we're kind of foolish if we're expecting Spanish-speaking countries to step up they haven't stepped up since 1959 and so this is I think a time where you know it frankly it's going to take American leadership for there to be some sort of positive transition and also for for there to be kind of also from it's going to happen ha- have to happen internally within Cuba because the Spanish-speaking countries, frankly, have done very little. Hello, Hello, my name's Marie Wood. Um, A quick question, what is the role of the church and freedom of religion now in Cuba? That's a wonderful question. I'm so proud of the church, of the Catholic Church and the other churches. Um, It's the only place in Cuba where you have some degree of freedom. And what I hear is that the youth just loves going there and having the opportunity to talk more freely. Um, one very interesting thing, wait till you hear this. Every, the, the shortage of medicines is so bad that each church has a like a pharmacist assistant in the church. And the medicines we send them are kept there. Like I took to Cuba, I take uh, diabetic medicine and uh, those little things to you measure your blood test. So the church that I go, uh, Mondays and Fridays, people come to be tested for their diabetes. And many times the government doctors call the church and say, what kind of medicine do you have there? So I can write this person a prescription uh, on the human level. On the intellectual level and the the you know uh, the most important thing you know the belief on God it's it's interesting to see how people really want to be there. When I I did mission, I went door to door for ten days, and we invited them to come to the church at night, and we couldn't get them out of the church. They were there until late. People yearn for God. People yearn for a belief. So the church has been has done the best they can. Thank you. you okay to do maybe oh. one more? One more question? Final question? Okay, let me ask what I've been thinking. All right, all right. Oh, first of all, let me introduce Mr. Chip. Chip Roy is a congressman from Texas. Right, and uh, I recently met him on a trip to Israel and was very impressed, and I'm very touched that you're here. And I had given him a book. (laughs) And one thing about the book, he started looking at the pictures, and uh, if anything else, I know everybody looks at the pictures. Thank you, Mr. Roy. I wanted to find embarrassing pictures of Alex. Aha! Thank you for coming. Okay. don't think this is off the wall, but the Bay of Pigs was a failure. Mm. How's about a one that's a success? What? Does anybody ever talk about a modern day similar effort? Uh, the speaker I heard last week, Maria Werlow, who uh, her book is out there, she says that she doesn't see what I want. She doesn't see a peaceful transition. She she just doesn't think it's going to happen. 
Um, and that puts us in the very difficult area of what should the United States do. I personally, I'm not an expert, but my Lala Mooney feelings are uh, <laughs> when uh, the little bit I read um, with China, Henry Kissinger did a lot of trips ahead of time, and, and a lot was negotiated at that level. I have heard the same thing about the Soviet Union, that while Reagan said, tear out this wall, at the same time, Reagan was sending people and negotiating. And that when those guards had the, the people come and try to break the wall, do you know what orders they had? The orders they had already was not to shoot. So I still, I'm not an expert, it's not my area. I can tell you what an expert says, Mrs. Werlow, and can tell you what I can hope. What a wonderful talk. Thank you so much for sharing so much about your family. And she does have about 50 books outside so far. Oh, I have more. I have oh, you do? 100. <laughs> Everybody will give one. Wonderful. And I'll send you a test. And you will, si <laughs> you will sign some if I'll people would like them? I'll sign them all. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And then we have the Heritage Foundation has a wonderful lunch for us as well. But let me give you a couple of gifts. Um, this is our uh, limited edition Claire Booth Loose coffee mug with her famous saying, Claire Booth Loose, what is that? Courage is the ladder on which all the other virtues mount. Courage. Right. That's you and your family. And, uh, of course, every woman needs a tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> right, Anna has some and gifts here as well. another gift. This is a gift from Heritage because it's winter and we are too tropical for winter, so it's a nice <laughs> Heritage scarf. <laughs> oh, I love scarves. Yes. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Because we put bells on everything here. Yes, we put, uh, yes, we put right. a bell on thank everything. You. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you all. If you'll come on out, uh, Lalo's going to have their books and sign them, and then the lunch is in the back, probably. Uh, so great. Was it good? Yes. Did you think so? No, no, seriously. Yes, really in the back. Okay. Here, I. Well, I want to start. Oh, thank you. Oh.